Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have a very special guest on the show today, Dr. Lisa Diamond. And um, let me just give you some facts about Lisa, and then I'll tell you some personal stuff about why I'm having her on the show. Uh, Dr. Lisa Diamond is a psychologist, a feminist. She's a professor of developmental psychology and health psychology at University of Utah. Her research focuses focuses on sexual orientation, development, sexual identity, and bonding. She has a PhD from Cornell University in human development and a bachelor's degree from University of Chicago in psychology. She's best known for this book right here, if you're watching on YouTube, um, Sexual Fluidity, Understanding Woman's Love and Desire. And in this book, she discusses the fluidity of female sexuality based on her study of 100 non-heterosexual women um, whom she interviewed, in a sense, over a period of 10 years. Uh, so it's a longitudinal uh, study, and I read this book several years ago, and it, it I mean, blew my mind, uh, but was also incredibly helpful for understanding specifically female uh, same-sex or non-heterosexual sexuality, or just female sexuality uh, as a whole, um, of which I am not a personal expert um, being a guy, and so it was super helpful understanding from a woman's perspective who is also a psychologist who also studied many other women in this area. Um, Lisa it does not have any kind of like religious identity. Uh, she is, she, uh, Lisa herself is a lesbian married to a, a woman. Um, I forgot to ask her how long she's been married for, but I am super thankful that she was willing and eager to come on uh, my show. I mean, it's um I reach out to a lot of uh, non-religious voices uh, sometimes to get them on the show and, and and oftentimes they say no not interested or I never hear back so I was super stoked when Lisa said sure I'd love to come on your podcast and I was like no way because she has been just such a um uh yeah just an important an important voice in the conversation about sexual orientation Lisa Diamond has if you don't know her name I mean I know some of you probably do but if you don't. I mean, Lisa is one of the leading voices in understanding the science behind uh, sexual orientation. So if you're asking the question about, is it nature? Is it nurture? Are people born gay? Does their environment make them gay or whatever? Lisa is a expert in this area, and she... Um, she is very passionate about arguing against the so-called born-this-way myth. And so she talks about that at the beginning of the show. We talk about the uh, born this way idea, and she just says that doesn't um, actually match the scientific data. And so you'll hear a lot about that. We also talk about her book, uh, Sexual Fluidity, which was a fascinating book. Um, so just, I mean, it should go without saying, but don't expect like a um, Christian worldview on sexuality uh, from Lisa in this conversation. She she's not doesn't have a Christian worldview, okay? So don't expect that. I had her on the show because she is an expert in the scientific conversation. And uh, yeah, I'm just so thankful she came on the show. So um, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology raw. Support the, show, support the show for as little as five bucks a month. And if you can't support the show, at least be generous toward the poor. Uh, be giving your money away to somebody in need. Um, and if you um, can't support the show, or even if you can't support the show, I would also encourage you to leave a review. Now, I've heard podcasters say, leave a five-star review. I think that's bunk. If you think it's worth five stars, give it five stars. But if you're like, you know what, Preston, your show's okay. Um, it's in the three or four star range and give it three or four stars. Leave an honest review. That's, 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 I can't believe people encourage 
um, people to leave a five-star review. It's like, well, you got to earn that. So if I've earned it, then leave a five-star review. If you think it's worth one star, leave a one-star review. But I would encourage you to leave an honest review. Um, it really does help people understand the show and what it's all about. So without further ado, please welcome to the show the first time, for the first time, the one and only Dr. Lisa Diamond. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am here. Um, man, I'm so excited. <laughs> I've got a fanboy uh, all over my guests here, uh, Dr. Lisa Diamond. Uh, I've already introed uh, Dr. Diamond. I've been following her work for a, a long time. And uh, Lisa, th- can I call you Lisa? Is a doctor? I have a sure. doctor. I have a PhD too. So sometimes, but I don't know. So, sometimes people with actual like medical degrees. Are like, but PhDs, you're not really a doctor. You're you know, my my dad was one of those people. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's a doctor. And I think he didn't like it when I was a doctor too. He's like, You're not a really a you're real not a really... I'm the I'm the real Dr. Diamond. You're like an interloper. I've never heard that because I originally doctor was a PhD thing. It wasn't like way back when, I think the history is it started with, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what the heck? Um, so anyway, thanks for being on, on theology in the raw. And, um, uh, I want to dive in. Why don't we start with your, uh, Ted talk from a couple years ago, your TEDx talk, um, where you said that I forget the exact title, but it was something like the, uh, the born this way narrative actually works against LGBT yeah, right? Or, or is that... it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't support LGBTQ equality. So um, can you for those who haven't seen the talk, would love for you, I would love to hear your perspective on that. Sure. So, you know, and, and I, it was really good to have the opportunity to give that talk because this had been something that had been sort of sticking in my craw for a long time. That, you know, uh, plenty of people who really don't know anything about the science of sexual orientation or gender or anything had sort of, you know, casually adopted this kind of lazy essentialism about sexuality um, as a strategy for securing human rights for uh, queer people that, hey, you know, they can't help it. Um, They were born this way. It's genetic. So let's be nice to these poor, Mm. suffering, you know, people. Um, And that uh, and and so now it's like plenty of surveys have shown that people think that um, that viewing sexual orientation as genetically determined is a pro-gay position. Mm. So one problem is that they're like the the inflation of a scientific fact with a pro or anti-gay position is a little bit whacked because science exists and then we as human beings decide to make rules about our society based on our values, based on whatever. So science is not pro-gay or anti-gay. Science just is there. Mm. It's up to us as humans to craft the kind of society that we want. Mm -hmm. And we can choose to do that in ways that align with certain scientific truths or don't align with certain Mm -hmm. scientific truths. But the idea that, you know, science and politics are wedded is problematic in and of itself. And in this context, um, 
you know, that that view of, you know, we're born that way, so we should have rights is is kind of a really kind of it sort of goes along with the notion that there's just something inherently bad about queer people. Like mm. they can't help it. Like it's a disability or something. Like, mm. oh, if they could change it, they would, but they can't. Yeah. And that is just an inherently kind of homophobic and transphobic idea that mm. we're only going to give you your rights because you're stuck with this. It's not your fault. Hmm. That whole thing of it's not your fault presumes that there is some fault to be had, that there's something wrong with it. Hmm. And, 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 and an actually pro-gay position would simply be, as a society, we value autonomy. Mm-hmm. We value individual sexual freedom. We value sexual diversity. And as long as what you're doing is not harming somebody else, mm-hmm. you have the right to privacy and you have the right to dignity. Mm-hmm. And I don't really care where it came from. Maybe it came from genes. Maybe it came from a hit on the head. Who cares? But if you value sexual diversity, yeah. the issue of causation is relevant. It's just a separate question. It's a fascinating question yeah. and one that I've devoted my life to, but it's not relevant to whether you should be allowed to get married, right? right? Either, and it's I think it's similar to the um, issue of interracial marriage. You know, when interracial marriage used to be illegal until the famous Loving v. Virginia case in in the '60s, and no, the the advocates for interracial marriage never went around saying some people just can't help loving black people. You know, they were born loving people of another. Oh, let's be, let's let them get married. It was that case was won on the basis of the fact that marriage choices are individual choices. They're they're autonomous decisions that the government has no interest in interfering with. No one ever got into this debate over why some white people want to marry black people and why, you know, did they always want to marry black people? Could they love another white person if they chose to? That's, I mean, we, we would think about that as ridiculous, right? We viewed it as an, as a question of individual liberty to choose your life partner. And that's really the basis, a stronger legal and ethical basis Mm -hmm. for LGBTQ rights. Not like, oh, we should feel sorry for them. They can't help it. Just like, do we have a society that values personal liberty and privacy with regard to sexuality and gender? Or do we think that the government has an obligation to intervene and prevent certain relationships from happening? It doesn't matter why someone wants a same gender relationship. All that matters is whether we think that society should be intervening in your intimate decisions or not. Yeah, that. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. Uh, what, what, I want to go back to the science behind it because that's uh, um, there's the you know ethical piece and some of the ideological assumptions that go into it. But what is the, What does the science actually say? Because I think most people assume that there's two options: either you choose to be gay, and since we now know that's not, you don't choose to be yeah. gay. Um, then the other option, you must be born that way. Um, but what is, talk to us about the science behind sexual orientation, especially I think in the last 10, 15 years, you know, cause I know there's been recent developments. You know, I, I often think that a useful analogy to the science of sexual orientation is the science of personality. We all know that individuals have different personalities. Some people are extroverted, some people are introverted. And we know that those are genetically influenced traits. 
We also know that when you call someone extroverted or introverted, those are fuzzy categories. They describe a general distinction that you can capture between two people, but they, they're floppy categories. They're fuzzy sets. Mm -hmm. And we all understand that over the course of someone's life, an extroverted person's you know, sequence of friendships and relationships is driven partly by their genetic tendency to be that way and also by the sequence of experiences that they have that allow them to express that personality trait in different ways. So over the course of that person's life, you're always seeing a combination of their genetic press and then their life experiences that are getting interbraided with that genetic press mm. at every single stage of the process. I think that that is a better sort of analogy, yeah. you know, to sexuality, that absolutely there's a genetic press. And actually, to be perfectly honest, the genetic press on personality is a little stronger than huh. the genetic press on sexual orientation. Really? The herit From twin studies, the heritability of sexual orientation is around 31, 32%, meaning that if you have identical twins uh, in the population, about 32% of the population variability in sexual orientation is attributable to genetic factors. For personality, it's more around 40% or 45%. Wow. So you're talking about a sort of, not a genetic determination, but a genetic press on the probability of expressing certain sexual traits. Mm -hmm. And over the course of life, that genetic press is interacting with life experiences, right? So it's absolutely possible that someone with a strong genetic press for same gender attraction will never be in an environment that really allows them to express that at all, right? Mm -hmm. In most cultures, you're channeled pretty rigidly into heterosexual relationships. And that person may not ever consciously, you know, come to an awareness of that. Then they might have an opportunity to express it. And it's like, oh, wow, oh, my God, mm. I actually like would like to do this. But there's always this, you know, that that genetic press does not create something in your brain that's like, hey, I am gay, yeah. right? These experiences, sexuality is a complicated thing, and our society works so hard to influence kids developing sexuality yeah. and to give them certain messages that you are never seeing a pure expression of everything, right? Yeah. You are always seeing this very culturally shaped expression of a very complex you know, human experience. And so it shouldn't be such a surprise that the manifestation is so messy and mm -hmm. so inconsistent because it's, you know, the, the genetic press is only partial and you've got strong cultural influences from day one that are working, mm -hmm. working, working to channel and press and express. And, and it, it I want to get into your, your book, Sexual Fluidity, which focuses on women. But would you, with what you just said, would you say that on a very general level that um, with with men, with males, um, that that genetic press is a little stronger in females? It's, again, on a very general level less? Or, or, or would you make a distinction between male and female sexuality when it comes to the genetic press? So what, what the most recent data suggests is that it's not a question of more or less but slightly different sets of genes. 
So the most recent genetic data that was published uh, in 2019 um, was looking at full genome scans, Mm -hmm. you know, that they that they got through um, 23andMe and from the United Kingdom's biobank. So you're looking at every single gene in your body. Mm -hmm. And they had full genomes from almost Mm 500,000 individuals. It was the largest uh, genome-wide scan for sexual orientation that's ever been conducted. And what they found was that there was like overlapping but distinct genes that seemed to be related to same gender sexuality. So there were some polymorphisms that would predict same gender behavior for both men and women. But then there was like two that were distinct for men and two that were distinct for women. Hmm. So it's, it's more accurate to say that men and women are differently genetically influenced rather than strong versus weak. And importantly, when we are able to identify those polymorphisms, we don't know what they're doing, right? We, right. You're just talking about genes that code for protein synthesis. Hmm. The, the pathway from that to a sexual experience is like, what, what is that? Like that we don't know. Um, and so it's possible that, um, that those genes have differential expression during different phases of development, maybe earlier developing for men than for women, but okay. that's speculative too. Okay. So again, I think it's, you know, I, I, I used to think that women were more fluid than men. My whole book was premised on that. I actually, the more data that I've collected and the more data that's come out, I'm not so sure that's true. I think there might be more similarities than differences between women and men. And again, it may be that men show their fluidity in different contexts and different circumstances huh. than women. And so it might be a matter of different, different, differentness rather than more or less. Okay, different kinds of fluidity rather than ones more fluid than... Yeah. You, yeah. Well, okay, so you gave a paper, I think it was 2015. I think the title is something like, I was wrong, men are pretty damn sexually fluid. Yeah. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Lisa, I have searched high and low for a transcript or a written copy of that paper. It doesn't exist, right? And I no, can't even find the talk. Just, it or... was an oral paper. But you know what? I ended up publishing a lot of the results from that talk um, in another paper. So, And I'd be happy to, to send I, it to you. I would love to see I, that. I, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't put the phrase, <laughs> I was wrong, in the title of the paper. But, yeah. well, let, let, okay, so let's back up because I might have opened up a big can. So your, your book, I'm going to hold it up for my YouTube. This is a YouTube and, and podcast. So this is the... Well, I, I don't have the jacket. So here's the spine. Um, there you go. Sexual fluidity, understanding women's love and desire. Lisa, I remember reading this with the actual cover with that somewhat. Um, it was like this sexy woman. That yeah. It's like, pretty I was sensual. Like, and, and the title, Sexual Fluidity, Understanding a Woman's Love and Desire. And the subtitle is written pretty bold on the front. Here I am. I'm at one of my kids' like sporting events. I'm reading this. And all the moms, all the soccer moms are looking at me like, uh, who's this creeper? You know? <laughs> They're so like, thank can you for I that. Saw that. Yeah. Can I saw <laughs> yeah. that book. I'd like to um, read that. I, I yeah. I'll, I'll, can you summarize for somebody who has no clue about the book? Summarize what the book was about. Sure. What you found in the book. It's a fascinating so, book. The book was the result of at that point ten years of work, which has now continued. So I've actually continued to follow these women for over. 
20 years. Really? Be coming up wow. 25 okay. years. Yeah. Wow. Um, a group of women that I started interviewing back in the early 90s, in the dark ages, when email wasn't really a thing yet. <laughs> um, and uh, I was interested in tracking uh, lesbian and bisexual identity development um, as it unfolded, most of the research, you know, I'm a, I'm a developmental psychologist. Most of the research on that process had been done um, retrospectively by taking a bunch of adults and saying, what do you remember mm. about when you first started thinking that you might be attracted to the same gender? And how did that work? And memory is a pretty biased thing. Yeah. And, um, and also a lot of that work had only been done on men and there wasn't that much data on women. And so I, I was like, well, you know, what we need to do is get some women who have just come out and just follow them over time rather than retrospecting backward. And what emerged from that was just a heck of a lot of variability in their kind of their pathways of relationships and attractions over time that some women started out you know, identifying as lesbian, and then they would end up in a relationship with a man, and they'd be like, well, maybe I'm bisexual, or maybe I'm just a lesbian who happens to be with a man right now, so maybe I don't know what I am, so maybe I shouldn't label myself, or, and then maybe two years later, they'd be back with a woman, they're like, no, 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 I think I'm a lesbian now, and then other women would be going through other transitions, and, uh, and so I coined the term sexual fluidity, to describe this capacity for variation. That it doesn't mean that you don't have an orientation. It means that your orientation doesn't provide the last word on every single attraction or relationship you're likely to experience or enjoy. That you've got a little bit of a wiggle room around it. So, because I think some people are like, does that mean that sexual orientation doesn't exist? It's like, no, it exists, but it's not the only thing going on. There is this variability around it, you know, that mm -hmm. as your life progresses and different relationships and circumstances intervene, you may have different opportunities to explore certain sides of your sexuality that you may have been more or less aware yeah. of over time. And so that as time goes on, you just see uh, much more variability than yeah. you might expect. If I remember correctly, I'm, I'm not going to get the percentage right, it's, but it's, it was a really small percentage of women within the hundred that you followed for 10 years that had the same identity every time, every two years yep. you checked in. Yep. Was it like 3% or something? Or It wasn't. It was, it was basically, it was a small proportion of women and, and almost all of them were lesbians, were women who were like, from the very beginning, they were like, I am not interested in men at all. Like those women were very stable. Women who, who started out with some mixture of attraction to both women and men okay. were the most variable. Okay. And that, you know, that has sort of held up in other studies that, um, but the other thing that's sort of relevant to that is that if you look population-based studies of sexual orientation, have found that if you look at the total population of women and men who have any same gender attractions mm -hmm. at all, <clears throat> exclusively same gender attracted mm -hmm. folks are an, actually a pretty small proportion of those people. There are far more people with bisexual patterns of attraction, ranging from mostly same gender, but not totally yeah. to mostly other gender, not totally. Huh. Those folks are way more common, um, than individuals with exclusively same gender attraction. But there you find a gender difference Yeah. for men. 
exclusively same gender attracted men mm-hmm. represent about 20% of men with any same gender attraction. So if you take all of these somewhat queer men in the world, about 20% are exclusively same gender attracted and 80% have some mixture of attractions to women and men. For women, about 95% of same gender attracted women are attracted to both genders and only around 5% are exclusively same gender attracted. So that very stable group of exclusive lesbians is actually kind of a small group in the total population prevalence of same yeah. gender sexuality. If I can ask, you you had put yourself in that 5%. I think I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I'm See, lucky. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm well, like a unicorn. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. it, it could be easy for some for somebody to say, oh, you know, this researcher is more bisexual oh, and she wants to try to show know, that most women are bisexual or I something. Know. About like I, I would get invited to speak at bisexual conferences all the time, and I'd be like, um, I need you to know that I'm, I'm not, I'm not actually bisexual. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm actually. Is that okay? And they're like, No, we need our lesbian supporters. Because I would be like, <laughs> I just need to disclose something, and like, I don't want you to be like, our bisexual champion. I'm like, but I'm not bisexual. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, that's in my anecdotal experience. It, it, I, I, and this is why I found your book so helpful because I kept meeting more and more women that seemed to demonstrate more fluidity. And even I think your book was so helpful in, and, and again, I'm, whenever I say men and women, I'm speaking in generalities, not absolutes. Um, so with women, generally speaking, even the categories of attraction between sexual attraction, emotional, physical attraction that's not sexual, maybe it's admiration, maybe it's jealousy, yeah, maybe it yeah. is sexual, maybe it's emotional, intimate attraction. You know, with women, generally, those categories are, are a lot fuzzier, right? With men, it's kind of like, I want to have sex with this person, not with this. I mean, a little more rigid, it seems like. Is that Would that be scientific? Well, would I and scientifically I also, verify? I also think some of, some of that is changing, too, and I think a lot of it has to do with the change in the culture. Um, one of the things that, you know, I talked about in the book was that, um, a lot of women grow up with a lot of erotic images of women all around them in newspapers and photographs. And so that, that experience of, do I want that or do I want to be that is a really common experience because you're in this position Hmm. of occupying the sort of gaze of the, you know, of of the viewer and seeing the woman as an erotic object at the same time that you're viewing yourself. I have Hmm. heard so many stories from young men uh, echoing that. And I think it's, it's corresponded with the sort of growth in men's magazines, like men's fitness. There are men on um, Instagram and things like that. And so that has kind of changed the, the whole sort of, uh, landscape. And so now men are starting to show the same sort of, um, like, do I want that or do I want to be that, Mm -hmm. that women have? Can you? I want to. I want to make sure we distinguish between what you're talking about when it comes to sexual fluidity within general categories of orientation versus um, reparative therapy or changing from one orientation to the other. Can you make uh, clarify maybe that distinction? Because some people might be hearing, "Wow, is she an advocate for reparative therapy?" Yeah, I mean, the, I think the best way that I can describe it is that it's similar to the weather, right? The weather changes 
we don't change it, mm. right? It changes on its own. And if you think that you can be like, oh, it's, sometimes it's sunny and then it becomes <laughs> rainy. I'm going to make it sunny. We, we can't do that. Those changes are outside of our ability to control them. Um, it's very similar to that. The changes that, that women underwent in, in my study were not changes that they were able to cause to occur. Um, and maybe it's just a human trait that we feel like we must have control over everything. But it, that does not appear to work. Um, and, and in fact, it can do, you know, great damage. I mean, the other thing about reparative therapy is that it, it's not going into the process of, of change saying, wow, let's just explore the human potential for growth. It's basically coming at it from saying this, there's a, there's a better way to be and a worse way to be. Mm -hmm. And, and what you are feeling now is bad and wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a very damaging thing, you know, to do, especially to um, an adolescent. Yeah. Have you seen, um, and maybe just anecdotally, or if you have studies, like, so there is, you know, fluidity within a general pattern of orientation. Have you seen really uh, strong swings for, for like, you know, from like a Kinsey two to a five or, you know, like, um, I would love to know your thoughts about the Kinsey scale too, but like, have you seen like, wow, that was not just a little bit of a shift. That was like, I used to be way into women and now I'm way into men and not women. Uh, have you seen that anecdotally or? Those, those huge shifts are much less common than shifts within that bisexual okay. category. Now, the one exception is that, you know, especially for women, um, you know, women are socialized to really sort of orient their own sexuality around their current partner. Okay. You know, it's I think it's a part of the historical control of female sexuality. Like you should be desiring your, you know, your your committed partner. So one of the things that I have observed is that, you know, say a woman who was, you know, pretty strongly bisexual, if she ends up, you know, in a relationship with one gender or another, she'd be like, well, now all of my attractions are about uh, my partner. Okay. So it's not so much a shift on the Kinsey scale. It's just like I'm just focused on this person. And this person happens to be a man or this person happens to be a woman. And so now 100 percent of my attractions are toward one gender because it's the gender of my partner. Yeah. And so relationships can have a very stabilizing effect yeah. on yeah. someone's attractions. That, that makes total sense. Do, do you, Given everything you're saying, and this is kind of like a thinking out loud question, but do, do you think these categories of sexual identity – are helpful or maybe not, that's not the, maybe potentially misleading because when I, I've heard people say, you know, like, it's almost like if you're gay, then you're gay. And if you're straight, you're straight. And there's no, like, it's just like this separate compartment, you know, it's like a separate ontological yeah. category of, and it just, I don't, yeah, I don't know. So I, sometimes I wonder, especially with younger people when they're searching, well, who am I, which box do I fit in? My, I'm again. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. I think that could be, in some cases, not really that helpful. Um, or what, what are your thoughts and on I, that? And in fact, the younger generation is is way less likely to, you know, identify. I mean, you know, yeah. the the LGBTQ has it went from you know LGBT to LGBTQ and then LGBTQIA and there's a plus and whatever. Yeah. And I think that just shows that you know the younger generation is trying to find a broader 
range of of identity options and a lot of them are like you know i don't want to i don't want to label myself you know one way or the other so i do think that you know it's becoming less relevant but i also think that the 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 reason that we still have lgbtqia rather than like nothing is because i still think that there's a value for individuals to sort of have that sort of tribal affiliation with other people who are like them in some way. Right. And so I think that there still is this drive to identify with others, but to not feel that that is like a tattoo, you know, marked yeah. on your forehead for the rest of your life. And that those identities are social locations. They're not necessarily any sort of essential truth about okay. you. Yeah. That, maybe that's why younger people, it seems like there's been, a, and I think I, I read a study on this, that the uh, massive rise in younger people identifying more as bisexual or on a gender spectrum of non-binary or queer, because these are fuzzier categories, right? And so they want that. Yeah. Is, is yeah. there a st- t- statistic for that? It seems like, even with, I mean, again, I'm, I'm in the church and every other youth group I go to and, and talk, you know, half the girls are, would say I'm bisexual, you know? Um, yeah, bisexual. Maybe, I, I'm not sexual. literally half, but I mean... A, yeah, it's a no, lot. it definitely. I de- and I think a lot of it is because those those identities, those more flexible identities like bisexual and pansexual, yeah. um, weren't very visible, you know, 20 years ago. But the internet has has changed a lot of that and has made uh, a broader range of identity categories yeah. kind of more visible and more accessible. And so you do find. Uh, more individuals identifying with those more flexible and broader categories. Yeah. I, I've, I've got two kind of unrelated questions. This one just came up in my head and this is theology and raw. Okay. So I, I think my audience mostly are Christians. They would, they'd probably love to know if somebody like yourself who doesn't have a religious, didn't grow up in a church, whatever, um, is a lesbian married, you know, what's your perception of the Christian church? And you can be totally honest. I, my assumption is it's probably not very positive, but I would love your, perspective when you think christian protestant church what comes to mind you know i i went to uh an, a religious school growing up even though we weren't like i think my mom was baptist but she didn't really practice um so i went to a very strict episcopal school when i was young and so um and and it it had uh, you know I remember the sermons were you know a little bit scary they were a little negative like to be very afraid of sin so it was you know it was nice to to have an environment that had like certain songs and certain rituals that had a certain familiarity but I did come away being kind of spooked by it um, and so but I'm also. You know, one of the things I've become sort of aware of during the rest of my life is the, the you know, Unitarian Universalist movement and that yeah. there's lots of um, attempts to have kind of more open and embracing aspects yeah. of Christianity and Judaism. Yeah. Um, and then living in Salt Lake, you know, I know so many um, members of the LDS faith who are trying to make that faith more accepting. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, my sort of perspective is that Christianity really depends on the Christian, you know, that there, there is, there are incredibly affirmative, you know, uh, 
aspects of it and then can be incredibly restrictive and it all depends on on the the person yeah. one of the women in my study um was a devout her family was was devoutly catholic and so she had come out when she was around 17 and she had a girlfriend her girlfriend was kicked out of her house hmm. so this uh and so my my participant her family felt that it was just a part of their faith to take this girl in. They housed her. They put her through college, even after she had broken up with their daughter. And that, for they were like, well, that's our values. That's our Christian faith. And so every time I hear parents sort of being like, well, we can't accept my children because against our faith. I'm like, this was a family whose faith said, you shouldn't accept same gender sexuality, but they said, but but the real tenet of our faith is is love and compassion and 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 taking yeah. the lost lamb and giving that that lamb a family. And I was like, wow, you know, that really shows that huh. the doctrine is the doctrine, but it's the individuals living the doctrine that that are you know the body of any church yeah, yeah. and. They can choose which doctrines they think are most important. And most Christian faiths have that kind of love yeah. and grace at their core. Yeah. So it's really up to individual Christians to say, is that the core part of my yeah. faith? Or is this more restrictive and punitive aspect the core part of my faith? And I think that's a very personal and individual uh, journey that that people go on. That's fa- that's so fascinating to hear from you. That's so I've, I've I know lots of families like that where they have yeah. you know a traditional Christian ethic, but man, they also have a very biblical view of radical grace and love. You know, and yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, it's and fascinating it's- when you read when you read like the Gospels. And I'm not going to preach at you, Lisa, but this is really cool. Okay. Like when you read the Gospels, Jesus, he often like pursued people who are marginalized by the religious leaders, like those who are committing, you know, socially unacceptable sins. He had a special heart for them. And, and Jesus yeah. had a really high, he was, you know, first class, you know, Orthodox Jew, very, you know, high ethical standard or whatever. Some might say stringent, but he also radically loved and accepted people who fell short of that yeah. because, you know, it, yeah. and the church needs it. You know, some of, my, some of my LDS friends, apparently there's a, a, a really core, you know, idea in the LDS church, Church of Latter-day Saints yeah. or the Mormon church, that they don't they no longer officially are allowed to call themselves Mormon, but most of themselves still do. So oh. I still do. I know, like the the church, the pre, the the president of the church announced, I think, two years ago at their general conference that they didn't like that shorthand anymore. Mormon. And you were not, okay. you were not, yeah. And, oh, and but everyone's that. like, but that's what we are. We're Mormons. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, a real core story that all kids kind of hear growing up in the Mormon church is about how, um, like, in your flock. You don't worry about all the people who are in the flock. You worry about the one lamb who's gone astray. You go after the one. Mm -hmm. And that one is just as important as the many. And, um, And that's been, I think, a part of the kind of progressive Mormon critique of the church's stance toward LGBTQ issues. Because a lot of progressive Mormons are being like, like we need to go after the one like the the folks who are being marginalized and excluded 
We need to not exclude them. We need to invite them back in. Why are we why are we not going after the ones who have been separated from the flock? Shouldn't they be our priority? Um, And so I think that notion of of Jesus going after the marginalized and trying to enfold them back in is a core part of Christian ideology. And it's surprising how that is not made more sort of vibrant and visible, I think, in some of these debates. Yeah, yeah, you can (laughs) – little do you know, but you're actually – you are discipling probably thousands of Christian leaders right now. <laughs> what you're saying, <laughs> reminding them, reminding us of, of what is core to our commitment to Jesus. My, my other question that's again, very unrelated. And I'm just super curious. Um, I, I've, I've done a lot of like focus more on, on trans related um, mm-hmm. issues the last few years. And on your website, you know, you say you, you're a lesbian feminist, um, and I know there's there's a really volatile conversation happening between some lesbian feminists and some trans activists. How, yeah. Where are you in that kind of conversation? Um, what's your how, I, how are you thinking through various trans issues today, or or is that I even mean, a thing I, you're really thinking it through? Oh, it's, oh, I'm totally thinking about it. I, I think about it more now than ever. I have a I have a student who's non-binary, and we're doing a lot of work on on gender diversity, and and I really think about those issues in in the rubric of gender diversity, right? That it's not about, they're they're not trans issues. It's like, it's about whether we have a a sort of appreciation and respect for diversity across the entire gender spectrum. And to me, that's a core part of feminism because for me, feminism is about sort of understanding and resisting the forces that privilege certain genders over other genders. And that absolutely aligns with a respect and embrace for gender diversity, that we simply should not have social systems that privilege certain gender expressions over others. And and we must actively resist that sort of discrimination and that sort of systematic disenfranchisement. So that's sort of how I approach it. Uh, You know, feminism is as much for men as it is for women. It's about having equal social structures that don't that don't use gender as a tool of oppression yeah. against anybody. Do you have a Do you have an opinion on? And I, I hope this isn't getting you in trouble. You could You could plead the fifth if you want. Do you have an opinion on um, trans women in female sports? I know that's a hot topic. Or I do. Uh, I I know, and I I think that basically this whole thing it's interesting because it's it's not really a debate that's happening in yeah. women's sports teams if you if you talk to women in women's sports both at the high school level and the college level they're like this is not we're not like this was a, a manufactured problem this is a manufactured debate by folks who want to create trans people as villains, as evil, scary people. It's like they've given up on the bathroom fight. So now they're like, oh, they're coming after your girls hockey team, right? The number of trans women, you know, trying to play women's sports is so low. And there's no evidence that they're taking any positions away from anybody else. So, you know, the idea that especially, and, you know, if you're talking about professional sports, you know, there's a robust competition, like anyone who is, you know, that that competition is alive and well. So really we're talking about high school 
sports. Hmm. And the idea that it is so difficult in this country to get any children to move their bodies off of the couch and away from their video games to get on a grassy field and do anything physical, that the idea that you would be trying to shut down any form of physical movement in an American teenager is crazy, right? <laughs> we have an obesity epidemic, right? Yeah. Just just let, just let them out, let them run around, like yeah. for God's sake. So this is a completely manufactured, you know, political crisis. There is no high school in the country that is worried about this. But you, you did say like it is, there are some cases, right? I, mean, I can think of a few. You're just saying it's, it's, a, it's a fringe thing that's been made more mainstream. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, first, there are so few kids that undergo a full gender transition, you know, in the high school years. That is really rare, really rare. So again, it, I feel like it's so few cases that it's just being used as a political football. It's not a real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there, there was a case in Idaho, a high school girl who I think got beat by a trans woman athlete. Um, and I think they made it to the courts or whatever. But I, 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 I've, I've said the same thing. I think those cases are, are real and, and we need to think through that. But definitely people latch on to I mean, it's. A lot of it comes down to just the, the nature of our news and media outlets today. It's like everybody's yeah. desperate for money. They need the clickbait. They need to produce anger and get your tribe stirred up. And so um, yep. the, the several cases yep. I can think of are probably all that have existed, you know, so there's not that many. Yeah. Um, and we can't read. I, from, I mean, <laughs> again, from a Christian perspective, we, we, we have a hard time with LGB, let alone the T is even extra stigmatized. Oh, so I'm like, I get know. to know 20 trans people and you'll realize that 19, maybe 20 of them are not trying to push them away. You know, they're not trying to change bathroom bills. They're not trying to, they just have to, sometimes they might pee in public and they don't want to be harassed in which bathroom, yeah. you know, where do I go? Just yeah. tell me where to go. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, they, they have become a sort of a very convenient scapegoat. Um, I think they're perceived as more threatening yeah. than queer people. And so and there's more violence directed at mm-hmm. them. Um, so it's a, and, you know, the, I, I'm doing a project now where I'm working with uh, parents in the Mormon church who have a trans or non-binary child and are and trying to reconcile their faith with their acceptance of their child because the Mormon church actually released a, a new policy position, uh, I think in January of 2020, um, saying that they, they did not acknowledge anything other than birth assigned sex, that there was just, as far as they are concerned, there is no such thing as a trans uh, or non-binary person. Um, and there's no kind of pathway to staying in the church as a, as a trans or non-binary person. And so when I talk to parents who've still managed to accept and embrace their child, what I found sort of really interesting was how many had found a way to sort of live with the contradiction, you know, that my church says this, but I also believe that Heavenly Father is a is a loving, is a loving, caring God, 
And I believe that, you know, that he doesn't necessarily want me to have answers to the questions of why and how. Mm. And one, one mother said, you know, I finally, I was praying and I finally realized that not knowing maybe was the answer. Mm. That maybe I'm supposed to struggle with uncertainty and struggle with confusion and learn to love in spite of that. Maybe that's the lesson. And maybe I keep, I keep asking God for answers. Why did this happen? Like, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my child? And maybe yeah. I'm not supposed to know. Maybe that's the answer. And, um, and, 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 and she was talking about how that gave her a lot of peace when she sort of like, God, maybe the message I'm receiving is that you don't have to know everything all the time. Yeah. Maybe you just accept. And I thought that was really powerful and really um, uh, showed a lot of humility and a lot of just ability to sort of sit with the confusion, mm -hmm. sit with the uncertainty, and reach a sort of grace about it. Yeah, that's good. And, and I asked this woman, you know, because the, the celestial kingdom is a big deal. For the LDS church that you are reunited with your family in the hereafter but not if your children don't stay in the church uh, and and I said at one point you know do you because the child had not only come out as trans but had actively left the church and and actually one of their siblings had as well and I said you know, what, what's your perspective on the celestial kingdom now? How do you, you know, is that something that troubles you or do you think about it? And she said, I know I will be with my children in the celestial kingdom. And I can't tell you how I know that. I know it makes no sense, but I know. I just know. That is, I just know that there is no way that Heavenly Father would separate me from my children, given how much I love them. I just know that. And I found that so moving that despite a very specific and restrictive doctrine, her personal faith allowed her to sort of sit with two contradictory ideas. The doctrine says that, that I can't be reunited with my children, but I know. I know. I know that it will be. And that blew me away. Yeah. Um, and that, again, it sort of shows you that you know, when the rubber meets the road, it's really down to the individual religious individuals to decide what their faith actually means concretely in their lives and in their relationships and whether, whether to tack toward the sort of love and grace or tack toward the restrictiveness and punitiveness. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've seen in, in my experience, a lot of parents, especially I mean, parents of faith, when their kid comes out, um, they immediately turn to themselves, right? And they, they, what did I do wrong? Where, what, you know, and they just go back and review. And it's, it's very much in the kid. When I talked to the kid, they said, that's really hard. Cause it's like, God, you're taking the, you know, here I am, this very, very vulnerable, scared moment. And the parent, not intentionally, I don't think it's, it's a natural yeah. reaction. They, but then they kind of make it about themselves. What did I and, do? What is this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I had a friend that did a, um, a PhD in psychology and his, his dissertation was on 
parents with kids who come out and he kind of showed that there's a lot of parallels with parents and it's almost like they have their own coming out, you know, and for them to kind of admit, again, these are parents of faith, you know, to, to admit that my son is gay. It's almost like an, it's almost like its own kind of microcosm of a, of a coming out and the shame that often surrounds um, LGBT kids of faith uh, also surrounds parents. And it's fast. I, I have a huge heart for, as a parent of four kids. I mean, I have a huge heart for parents that, you know, um, are, you know, have kids and they're wrestling with how, how do I parent my kid? Well, when you have the, my faith on the one hand, my, like you said, your doctrine, but then I'm also called to love and what does that look like? And, um, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I want to come back, come back if you, if you will, to the sex, uh, sexual fluidity conversation. Um, so your book was published, I think 2011 or 13. I mean, it's a while ago, like almost 10 years ago. Um, yeah, hold on. I'm going to move to a quieter space. Because oh yeah. Yeah. No worries. Um, sister teaches second grade remotely. Mention me. Oh. <laughs> she was like, I can hear you. <laughs> And soak it by second graders. <laughs> yeah, the second graders maybe don't need uh, this much information. <laughs> um, a bit much. That's so funny. Okay. Um, what What have been some advancements or developments, or what What are some interesting questions that still need to be unpacked with regard to sexual orientation as it intersects with sexual fluidity? Maybe in the last couple of years. I mean, again, I I I follow a little bit the kind of science conversation, it seems like there's still more and more kind of that we're learning about the complexity of, of sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Can you, yeah, what's, what's, what's well, hot right now? What's going on in the conversation? Well, one of the things that were, you know, it's only been relatively recently that some of the huge national surveys that are done every couple of years that the CDC does mm-hmm. have included, you know, enough information on sexual attraction and sexual identity for us to have a sense of, of what the population looks like on those things. And, and that's the data, for example, that's shown us how many more bisexual folks there are out there in the world okay. than um, exclusively same-sex attractive folks. One of the questions that that has sort of raised is whether these are all part of the same phenomenon or are we, are we mixing some apples and oranges together? Um, one of the, the, the pieces of data that sort of brought that out was this huge genetic study I mentioned that looked at 500,000 people. Now this study, uh, didn't have kind of complete information on patterns of sexual identity or attraction. So they used a, the kind of crudest measure possible for sexual orientation, uh, just based on what data they had. And it was whether you had ever engaged in a same gender sexual relationship as an adult after age 18. So that's pretty crude, yeah. right? Because you could have done that once, you know, drunk at a party and, yeah. or it could be like your whole thing. Um, but they also had data on the proportion of your sexual partners over your life that had been same sex. So that's a, a slightly better measure, right? Because you could say, oh, if someone had if 90% of their, you know, sexual partners were same gender, like that, that gives you more information than someone who's like, yeah, I had sex with the same gender person once, but 
over the course of my life, only 2% of my sexual partners, you know? So that is more like the Kinsey scale, right? Where yeah. you have kind of somewhat same gender oriented toward exclusively same gender oriented. So one of the things that they found was that the, because it turns out that there are hundreds of genes all making tiny, tiny contributions to the probability that you will be involved with the same gender person as an adult. So they have a collection of hundreds of genes with these tiny effects. And then they separately analyzed the folks that had, you know, they took, so they, first they compared people with any same gender partners to everybody else, mm-hmm. right? And then they took the, the group that had any same gender partners and they just looked at were there genes that differentiated between the ones who had 2% of same gender partners versus 50% versus 100%. Mm-hmm. So the, the bombshell finding was that the collection of genes that differentiated between folks with any same gender partners and folks who had never had same gender partners were totally different genes than the ones that differentiated between folks with just a few same gender partners and a lot of same gender partners, which was crazy because everyone sort of assumed that having any same gender partners is sort of like just a form of being gay. And then the more of that you have, the more gay you are. (laughs) Not true. Not true at all. And so one of the possibilities that this suggests is that maybe there's, again, sort of using the analogy of personality, maybe the trait that's differentiating between folks who have had any same gender partners and folks who've never had any is more just like this openness to express yourself, just some sort of ability to go against social norms, Mm -hmm. right? Because... All we know about those two groups is that one of them did something that is socially disapproved and one group never did that socially disapproved thing. But we don't know what either of them truly want, right? So then if you look at the folks who have engaged in same gender behavior and look at how much same gender behavior they, they engaged in, well, once you've taken the step to engage in same gender behavior, you're all kind of like you're all the same on that degree of willingness to violate norms because you all did it. Right. And so then being more willing to break norms doesn't really matter anymore. And so there you're talking about a different sort of trait. So it may be the combination of your interest in same gender individuals. That's your orientation. Mm-hmm. Maybe that in order to be expressed also has to come along with a personality trait that motivates you to actually take the risk to and and you know value yourself and step outside the rules of society. And so again, when you look at the expression of of you know a lesbian or a bisexual or a trans person, you're you're looking at whatever their genetic press toward that identity is, combined with a whole bunch of other traits that may make them more or less likely to ever act on that, to ever take the risk to mm-hmm. say it out loud um, because every single culture that has been studied on the planet has rules about sexuality. Yeah. The rules may differ, 
But there is no society that has ever been studied that does not have rules about who you're supposed to have sex with, when you're supposed to have sex with them, under what circumstances. And so to express some form of sexual behavior, whether it's same gender sexuality or having an affair or masturbating or whatever, doing something that is against your society's rules yeah. takes a certain amount of gumption. And, and that is interacting in some way with yeah. uh, sexual orientation to produce different patterns of expression. It's so fast. So, I mean, the, the, the nature-nurture question, and, and I love in your book, I still remember, I, I mean, it's been six years since I read it, but you, I think you compared it to like the ingredients in a chocolate cake. <laughs> it's like... Once you bake it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what you get a big piece of chocolate cake, like you can't now extract the eggs from the flour, from the sugar. Like it's just all a big complex mess. And I think yeah. you said that's kind of like the nature-nurture. Yes, nature plays... Yeah some role and nurture this, but to try to unravel that, like, okay. Oh, oh, here's what I wanted to ask you too. Um, I know, and ah, this is super sensitive, but like uh, what role does trauma or especially sexual abuse play? I know there's that one view that's like all gay or lesbian people have been sexually abused. Um, statistically it's higher, um, that I think, but yep. it's less than 50%, I think 30%, I want to um, say. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it, it varies quite a bit and it also varies by ethnicity. And also there's, you know, I, I think the other thing that's important to remember is that a lot of the studies, so we, there definitely is a higher rate of early adversity okay. um, among queer and trans populations. But that early adversity category uh, com includes a whole number of experiences. Okay. It includes physical abuse, okay. um, sexual abuse emotional neglect, early economic adversity, parental mental illness or incarceration. It often includes frequent residential changes. So early adversity, and, and it usually, so some studies differentiate between sexual abuse and physical abuse okay. and other forms of adversity. Other studies put them all together as early adversity. And so in some cases, we're, you know, we're combining yeah. a lot of different experiences together. So overall, you definitely do find that um, uh, individuals with, you know, a non-heterosexual orientation and and trans and non-binary individuals report higher rates of early adversity. The measures of early adversity typically include everything up until age 18. So in a lot of cases, the early adversity can occur okay. after the kid has already come out or begin to express okay. gender non-conforming behavior. Um, and there's some evidence that um, if a child begins to express those, you know, tendencies, they end up getting punished by yeah. their, their parents and mistreated by their parents. Hmm. So there is no evidence that, you know, that early adversity causes, okay. you know, individuals to be, uh, you know, different in that way. However, one of the things that's actually an area of my research, um, one of the things that we know about early adversity is that it can have um, an effect on our stress response systems that makes us sort of hyper reactive to stress. And this is thought to be sort of due to the fact that if you're a kid in, um, in an adverse environment, you sort of have to be on alert all the time, right? Because danger is around you constantly. Mm -hmm. So your neurobiological threat systems go up and they're like, 
you know, hypervigilant for any cues of danger. Um, one of the things that I have kind of wondered about is whether that sort of hypersensitivity to threat also makes individuals just more aware of their own feelings and experiences and sort of just more sort of keyed in to mm. their body's response so that um, a kid who has a genetic press towards mm. same gender sexuality, who has also experienced early adversity and has that sort of super alert nervous system might be more aware of their own sexual attractions and more sort of in tune with what they actually want because their body is mm. sort of like, mm. and so it might be an effect that's like the, the folks who have been exposed to early adversity might come out sooner. They might be more aware of their feelings because their whole body has learned to be hypersensitive to cues all the time. Um, and that that might facilitate awareness of same gender attractions. It's just another uh, piece of just the complexity, right? The nature nurture interaction mm -hmm. that the more you study mm -hmm. more <laughs> keeps getting more complex. Uh, and by complex, yeah. I mean like be beautifully complex. I think mm -hmm. not, not in a negative way. Um, I, I'm curious along those lines. Um, and again, this is, I guess more of a, well, there's a debate in the church about some of the sexual identity terms and whether they're good or not or whatever. Do you think sexual identities reinforce actual sexual attraction? Like say there's somebody who experiences some level of attraction to the same sex, but there's like, oh, I'm not going to call myself by any identity. I just, this is just part of my experience, whatever. Versus somebody mm -hmm. who identifies as gay and every time they wake up, they reinforce that identity. Do you think that that, reinforce that identity being reinforced has a plays a role in the strength of their mm -hmm. attraction or I don't know. I'm I, kind of I, formulating my question out loud, but is that, I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's more accurate to, I mean, humans by nature are meaning making creatures. Yeah. You know, we are always looking for patterns in our own ideas and, and it's not just with regard to sexuality. You can see it, you know, from early ages. It's like, oh, my my child just played soccer really well. I think I've got a soccer star. I think <laughs> I've got a soccer child. Or like, you're such an artist. You're you're a natural artist. You're a musician. I see this tiny we are likely to look at everything and try to yeah. make a pattern or a category out of it. That's partly how the human brain works. Huh. That's what we do. That's how neurologically we work. We seek patterns. We seek, you know, we chunk things together. Um, and so I think it's not all that different between, um, okay. you know, sexual identity and, and anything else. I think we all find it reassuring to have a category that helps us make sense of mm -hmm. ourselves. But I think if you look at adolescents in particular, they're pretty loose about those categories. You know, yeah. I know plenty of, of adolescents who it's like one day they're this, I'm a yeah. goth. That's who I am. And two weeks later, it's something different. So I don't think there's any danger that adopting a certain sexual identity will channel a kid in a certain direction okay. because if you watch any teenager they pick up those categories and drop them like hot potatoes yeah. all, all the time. Yeah. And if anything, I think the current kind of press among contemporary youth 
has been to not label your sexuality and to just kind of be like, I think that's one of the, the sort of motivations behind terms like pansexual. Yeah. It's like, you know what, whatever, you know, I don't care. And to some degree, I think that can, you know, be a healthy thing. I do think the notion that your identity is some eternal truth about you. I mean, that's exactly what my research kind of suggests is kind of a whacked notion. Yeah. It's not some eternal truth. Identity is a way that we make sense of our current mm-hmm. circumstances. And those circumstances fluctuate. Yeah. Um, and so identities often fluctuate. Um, you know, I think for youth in particular, you know, Eric Erickson did tons of work on identity development in adolescents. Adolescents are in a period of their life where they're trying to find out who they are. So it's kind of natural that they would put their sexuality in that category too. Um, mm. but I, but they're not very stable categories. So I would, I wouldn't, I don't think any parents need to be alarmed that, you know, that they are reinforcing anything by adopting an identity label. Just, just, for them, it's not that different from other identities yeah. they may adopt and then drop. Lisa, I've taken you over an hour, and we opened up a huge can of worms at the end, but we're going to have to let those worms crawl all over this place <laughs> because I don't want to take another hour to, to unpack all that. But man, I uh, so thank thank you for coming on a Christian podcast. I mean, I don't know if you were nervous or not, but hopefully it was a good yeah. time for you. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for your work. I love just your... Um, yeah, just your willingness to even say things that go kind of against mainstream assumptions and stuff. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Can, can people find so your your book, Sexual Fluidity? Do you have other? I, I've not read another book by you. Do you have other books out? I know you got loads no, of papers and stuff. Keeps, everyone keeps asking me if I'm going to write another book, and right now I have no desire to write another book. But you know, maybe yeah. that will change. But most of my other work is is empirical papers. But uh, I have a lot of my papers um, on my University of Utah website. Okay. My my mother has informed me that if you type Utah and Lisa Diamond into Google, you'll find my webpage right away. Thank you, mom, for monitoring my, (laughs) I don't have any sort of social media presence, but you can find most of my papers on my You got a great, that YouTube talk, uh, the TEDx talk is on YouTube. I just, I tweeted it for people to. And I put a link to that talk on my university page as well. Okay, perfect. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. All right. Thanks so much. 